Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Forge, the president of Gateway Seminary, continuing our conversation about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Most ministry leaders today are dealing with significant conflict in their ministry settings. Organizations are having conflict, churches are having conflict, denominations are having conflict. And part of what's driving this is, of course, theological differences that exist between people, uh, between churches, and even between denominations. But another part of what's driving this is a misunderstanding of how to handle theological disagreement when it should lead to real conflict and when it should not. So today on the podcast, I want to talk about uh, managing or working through theological differences in ministry organizations. The first thing I want us to understand is that preserving the fellowship of a church or a ministry organization is a priority. Galatians chapter 6, 1 through 5, Philippians 4, 1 through 3, Colossians 3, 12 to 17. These are just three passages in the New Testament which speak strongly about the importance of preserving fellowship among believers. There's no question but that a strong New Testament emphasis is on unity, oneness, togetherness, cooperation. So we establish that, first of all, that preserving fellowship is a priority. But the Bible also says that confronting believers is sometimes part of preserving fellowship. In other words, go along to get along is not acceptable among the people of God. Sometimes you have to say, this behavior has to stop, this belief has to change, this practice is unacceptable in order for true unity to be demonstrated and to be practiced going forward. So confronting believers is sometimes part of preserving fellowship. Here's some examples. First of all, uh, disrupting a church with false teaching has to be confronted. You can read an example of this for in Acts chapter 15, where the church confronted the false teaching that circumcision was required for salvation. So serious doctrinal error like that has to be confronted, and disrupting fellowship in order to do that is a biblical uh, mandate. Another example is uh, disrupting a church with sinful choices has to be confronted. Uh, the most glaring example perhaps in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where uh, a man was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Paul said, stop it. Put an end to that. Confront it. Make sure this person is separated from the church if they will not repent of this unacceptable behavior. So disrupting fellowship uh, is, is, is acceptable when sinful choices have to be confronted. And then there's a third time when you have to disrupt a church fellowship or a ministry fellowship, and that's when frivolous arguments are being put forward that are divisive. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 13, Titus 3, 8 through 11 are good passages, passages of Scripture on this issue. They say that when people are disrupting a church with frivolous arguments or causing friction or difficulty, you have to confront that. And if necessary, break the fellowship in order to preserve the unity of the church or organization going forward. So, 
Preserving fellowship is a priority until it's not. And when serious doctrinal error, serious moral compromise, or frivolous argumentation is taking place, the leaders have to step forward and say, this has to stop. And if it can't stop, then we have to divide because we can't go on like this. Preserving unity is a priority. Sometimes confronting certain behaviors, beliefs, or practices is essential to preserving the long-term unity of the church. But having said that, the Bible also balances that perspective by teaching that deference is required to preserve fellowship. For example, in Acts 15, Paul opposed circumcision if it was related in any way to conversion. But in Acts 16, Paul circumcises Timothy. Why? Because his uncircumcision was proving to be a hindrance to the preaching of the gospel. So, on the one hand, Paul opposed circumcision if it produced theological compromise But on the other hand, he was for circumcision if it furthered the advance of the gospel. Same physical act, different reasons called for different responses from the leadership. Deference. Understanding what's happening and making deferential decisions to stand firm on the one hand, to give in on the other. It's a good example from Acts 15 and 16 on the issue of circumcision. Paul advocated deference to advance the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.22, that famous passage about becoming all things to all people so that by all means some might be one to faith in Jesus Christ. So here's what we've kind of established so far as a framework for this discussion on resolving theological conflict in churches and ministry organizations. First, preserving fellowship is a priority. Second, disrupting the fellowship is sometimes an essential part of preserving the fellowship when there is serious doctrinal error or behavior that's unacceptable or practices that have to be addressed. And then, deference is always required in order to preserve fellowship. Yes, it's appropriate to take a stand on some things, but it's also appropriate to defer on other things, and to have the wisdom to know how to make the call in the moment. Now, the next statement may be a surprising one, but stay with me as we flesh it out just a bit. Resolving doctrinal conflict in churches and ministry organizations means that we must first admit that some doctrines matter more than others. Now, you might say, no, Every doctrine matters the same. Well, does it really? Let's think about this for a moment. Some doctrines matter more than others. This is revealed by several common practices in uh, our our Christian movement. First, uh, the Baptist faith and message is a good example. We have to sign a statement at Gateway Seminary that we will teach in accordance with and not contrary to the Baptist faith and message. But what we really mean is, is particularly those first articles in the document. Scripture, God, Jesus, salvation, those issues that are at the front of the document. Those are the most important ones. Many people who 
subscribe to or say that they believe the Baptist faith and message don't even know that it has articles in it about church-state relations, about Christian education, about the Christian social order. Yes, there are articles in the Baptist faith and message where we've written out our doctrinal stance on these issues. But would you expect everyone to hold every one of those equally as you would perhaps those statements in the article on the doctrine of God? I don't think so. Most of us would give a lot more latitude on some aspects of the document than we would give on others. Uh, this is uh, this fact that some doctrines matter more than others is also revealed in our interviewing of pastors and professors and other ministerial candidates. We tend to focus on certain doctrines that matter a lot more to us and not nearly as much on some of these lesser doctrines. It's also clear that some doctrines matter more than others because cooperation within denominations is based on this reality. Even in a denomination like the Southern Baptist Convention, there is not uniformity about the doctrines that we believe. Now, we'd like for there to be greater uniformity on some issues than on others, but even that illustrates my point, that some doctrines do matter more than others. And then finally, another way to see that some doctrines matter more than others is the experience of martyrs and what people are willing to die for. You know, I have a friend who was uh, a pastor under communism in the 1980s. He was arrested multiple times eventually was expelled from his country. But when he was arrested, he was often interrogated at gunpoint. And he told me once that they would put a gun to his head and say, do you believe Jesus is the only Savior, the only way of salvation? And he would answer yes. He would answer yes because he knew he couldn't compromise that core doctrine. Now, he never said this, but I jokingly said, if someone put a gun to my head and said, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to God? I would say, yes, I do believe that. But if you put that same gun to my head and said, uh, elders or deacons, which ones should lead the church? I would say, well, let's have a conversation about that. <laughs> I'm not willing to die over the form of church government that you may have adopted. So some doctrines matter more to others because, frankly, there are some doctrines that people have been willing to die for throughout our movement. Others, not so much. So we see that some doctrines do matter more than others. Now, theologians have attempted to quantify uh, these doctrinal areas of emphasis. Some have said that there are three categories of uh, doctrinal importance, first, second, and third, or primary, secondary, and tertiary. Uh, I've recently read some guys who are saying, no, three is not enough. We need four categories or even five categories to explain the various levels of doctrinal importance of the things that we believe. Well, um, I'm not sure if it's three or four or five, but I know that when I wrote my book, The Case for Antioch, I settled on three. And I'd like to overview those for you uh, on the podcast. First, there are what I call convictions. These might be also referred to as level one or first order or primary doctrines, but I call them convictions. Now, convictions are the doctrines that define the Christian faith. They are what make a person a Christian or not a Christian. They are non-negotiable 
among true believers. And it is these doctrines that are worth dying for during persecution. Convictions, like, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone, the doctrine of the Word of God being uh, inerrant, infallible, inspired. These are doctrines that we're willing to die for, that we cannot compromise. If you don't hold a high view of God, a clear view of salvation, and a, a high view of Scripture, then I question whether you really are a Christian. These are non-negotiable. You can't say, for example, well, Jesus is one good way to find God and call yourself a Christian. This is at the core of who we are as believers, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, not a way, truth, and life. Now, on the podcast today, I'm not going to try to give you a comprehensive list of these, but... Just think about those core doctrines that define who we are as Christians, that separate us from every other religion and every other belief system. What is it that defines us, that makes us distinctly and uniquely Christian, that is non-negotiable? And then if under persecution someone put a gun to your head and said, do you believe this? Even though you know it might cost you your life, you would say, I will not recant, and I cannot compromise. Non-negotiable. So those are the first level of doctrinal convictions that we hold. Now, what's the second level? The second level are what I call commitments. These might also be called second level or second order or secondary doctrines. These are what I call commitments. Now, commitments although they are not convictions, are significant, vital issues for Christians. Commitments are important because they define vital issues. Yet, there is some variability among them among true believers. And these commitments are the basis of fellowship in churches and in denominations. So while they're not convictions in that they define the Christian faith, they are commitments in that they define local church and usually denominational cooperation together. Let me give you some examples. The clearest one perhaps is baptism. As a Baptist, I believe in baptism by immersion for believers only. I believe I can make that case clearly from the Bible. I reject infant baptism. Uh, I reject sprinkling as a mode of baptism. I believe in baptism by immersion for believers only, and I'm committed to that. And in order to be a part of the church where I attend, you must also believe the same thing. And in order to be a part of the denomination where our church serves, you have to believe the same thing. But 
I would not say that if you disagree with me on the issue of baptism that you are not necessarily a Christian. You may say, well, I believe in sprinkling, or I believe in infant baptism perhaps followed by a subsequent immersion experience for an adult. I don't believe those things. But I think you can hold those positions and still be a true follower of Jesus Christ. Here's another example. Charismatic expressions are tongue speaking, for example. I, as a Baptist, do not embrace tongue speaking. I don't think you have that you can make a biblical case for it to be a part of the Christian faith or a Christian practice on a consistent or regular basis. I think there are descriptions of it in the Bible, and there are also prescriptions and uh, pre, uh, pro- proscriptions, if you will, uh, for it in the Bible. Nevertheless, I've come to a convictional position that tongue speaking is not part of my life. It's not part of the worship services of the church where I attend, and it's not part of the denominational family where our church is associated. Now, there are other Christians in our world who do practice tongue speaking and who believe it is important, and some even believe it's essential as a demonstration of their Christian faith. I would not say they are not Christian. Because for me, tongue speaking does not rise to a convictional level one primary doctrine. You can disagree with me on this particular one and still be a Christian. You can still affirm the core doctrines of our faith and disagree with me on this second level commitment. And while we may not share church fellowship or denominational fellowship, I would not deny that we share Christian brotherhood and Christian connection because we share those convictional commitments that I've already described on the podcast. So commitments are important. Now, this is a common misunderstanding when we teach on this. People think, well, the convictions are important, but the commitments not so much. No, the commitments are very important because they establish the fellowship of your local church and the fellowship of your denominational family. Now, this is one of the important distinctions that you can make with people who raise these issues and want your church to change to match what they believe to be the truth about one of these commitments. So, for example, someone comes to you and says, I don't believe our church should have to require immersion for membership. Or, I believe our church should start practicing tongue speaking in our worship services. It is appropriate to say, I understand those are commitments that you share, and while I'm not questioning your convictional commitment to Jesus as your Savior and Lord and the fact that you are a Christian, I am telling you that we do not share these commitments with you, and therefore you need to go and find another church where you find people who do share your commitments, because these commitments are the foundation of church and denominational fellowship. So rather than you having to change to accommodate everyone else's commitments or level two or secondary doctrinal positions, just encourage them to leave and go find a church that practices what they believe and give their lives wholeheartedly in service there. Doing this one thing would eliminate so much doctrinal conflict in churches, denominations, and ministry organizations. To just simply have the integrity to say, I no longer have the same commitments that this church has or this denomination has or this organization has. I no longer have those same commitments. And so therefore, I'm going to move on to find a church and a denomination and an organization that shares my commitments. 
And rather than staying and creating division and confusion and trying to change people to become what you think you've become, just walk away. And if you're a leader, encourage people to do that, that they can find others who share their commitments and can serve without this kind of conflict. So we have convictions. They define the Christian faith. They're non-negotiable. They're worth dying for during persecution. Then we have commitments, also very important because they define vital issues for Christians. They're variable among true believers, and we would never say that someone who disagrees with one of these commitment-level doctrines is not a true Christian, but we would also say we're not going to have perpetual conflict over these issues. If you don't believe what our church has agreed to believe, our denomination stands for, or our organization represents, then simply move on. Go find a church, a denomination, or an organization that expresses these same commitments that you've come to in your life and serve happily there, eliminating the conflict over this level of issue. Then there's a third area, convictions, commitments, and third, what I call preferences. Now, preferences are also rooted in our doctrinal beliefs, but preferences are things that are changeable. They're based on cultural background, regional biases, even political persuasions, and generational experiences. Preferences are things that emerge out of our theology but are very malleable, in other words, very flexible in terms of how they're going to be applied across our movement. Some examples of this. One is preaching style. I know people say, well, I only believe in expository preaching. Well, personally, I like expository preaching the best myself. It's what I normally do, and it's what my pastor does, and it's the kind of church I like to attend. But that doesn't mean that other forms of preaching are not also biblically acceptable. This is a preference that I have that comes out of my uh, background of understanding Scripture and out of my personality and even out of my Western orientation of how I approach learning. Nothing wrong with that, but this is a preference area. Here's another one, worship style. Worship styles vary widely around the world in different churches because of cultural backgrounds and because of different influences on, uh, on musical styles and on, on these uh, rather uh, preference-related issues. Look, there's no possible way that there can be unity on this in this area of worship style, neither should we want there to be. You say, no, I believe everybody should be singing hymns. You think an African church worshiping under a tree in the bush is going to sing hymns? You think people in, uh, in uh, India who, who um, perhaps have been from a Hindu background, uh, who have a certain way of seeing the world and understanding music and liturgy are going to embrace a hymn written by some Englishman in the 1800s? I mean, come on. That's just simply not going to happen. And so worship styles and preaching styles, these are things that are really influenced by tastes and background and uh, regional uh, biases and political persuasions and even generational experiences. I'll give you another one. Uh, the way people dress for church. <laughs> I mean, it's just uncanny to me what people wear to church these days. Uh, and Yet, I realize a lot of that is just generational expectation, generational experience. Uh, it, it really isn't a, a doctrinal issue, and I don't want to make it one. 
And so these are the kinds of things that come in this preference category. Now, let's review and then we'll draw some conclusions. I started out by saying that we have to stand for doctrinal integrity, yes. But that this doctrinal integrity issue is also the cause of a lot of conflict in churches and ministry organizations, and it doesn't have to be. Now, preserving fellowship is important, but there are times when you have to break the fellowship. The Bible clearly teaches this, but it also reminds us that deference is important as much as possible to maintain the relationships that we have in in, in Jesus Christ. Well, we've talked about how to understand the relative importance of doctrinal issues. Some doctrines are convictions. They matter a lot because they are non-negotiable. They define our faith and they're worth dying for during persecution. But a second level of doctrinal understanding is also important. I call these commitments. These are commitments that we make based on our understanding of Scripture. And out of those commitments form churches and denominations and Christian organizations and when we're in those, when we're in agreement on those commitment level doctrines, we can find peace and work together well as we express ourselves in these churches, uh, denominations, and organizations. And then there's preferences, that third level. Yes, these do grow out of our doctrinal convictions and our understanding of Scripture, but we have to also acknowledge that they are largely shaped by some of these external factors that I've described changing taste, cultural background regional biases, even political persuasions, and generational differences. Now, with those distinctions in mind, let me draw two important conclusions. First, identifying convictions and holding them without compromise, while at the same time demonstrating patience and grace with other believers who have differing commitments and preferences is essential for unity. Let me say it again. Identifying convictions and holding them without compromise, while at the same time demonstrating patience and grace with other believers who have differing commitments and preferences is essential for unity. On convictions no compromise. On commitments and preferences, patience, grace, giving deference, and being willing to work to find solutions when conflicts arise, including the solution of peaceably saying we need to separate, find others who see these second and third level issues the same way we do, and get on with the work of God in that context. This is the fundamental challenge of resolving doctrinal conflict in ministry organizations. Now, moving on, the most tragic mistake I see being made today in this regard is that doctrinal conflicts among Christians occur. Inappropriate, explosive Doctrinal conflicts among Christians occur when an issue is given more weight than it deserves. When a commitment is treated like a conviction or a preference is treated like a commitment or a conviction. 
when you decide to take your stand on a commitment or a preference, just like you would if it were a conviction. In fact, making out of your own commitments or your own preferences new convictional standards that you're willing to plant your flag on that hill and die if you must. I feel like this is an inappropriate, explosive, damaging way that doctrine is being used and causing conflict in ministry organizations. Listen, settle on your convictions and then make the determination, I will not be moved. But on commitments and preferences, behave differently. Show patience and grace and deference. And teach others to do the same. And when someone comes at you and says, I want you to take a stand on this issue, help them to understand that you can't really do that because it's not a non-negotiable core doctrine of our faith. And instead, there's a better way to resolve that kind of issue. Now, in our world today that is marked by polarization, tribalism, by people pulling apart at every opportunity, I'm not naive. I'm not saying that taking this approach will solve all your problems, but what it will do is give you a framework for legitimate, realistic, measured conversations with other believers so that they will understand at least how to think through these issues before they come to conclusions that lead to ultimate rupture in churches, denominations, and ministry organizations. So again, hold your convictions without compromise. But on commitments and preferences, patience, grace, deference. Finding ways to work together if possible, but encouraging separation and going on with the work if necessary but not perpetual conflict, nor taking a stand and creating unnecessary division over these issues like you would a conviction, and making sure that you don't make the mistake of treating a commitment or a preference like a conviction, giving it more weight than it deserves, and as a result, creating unnecessary conflict in your organization. Think through this way of understanding levels of theological importance with various doctrines that you believe. Think hard about this and ask God to help you sort out your convictions from your commitments and your preferences, and then give you the courage to stand where you must, and then the discipline and the deference to show patience and grace in other areas. Put this into practice as you lead on. <laughs>